This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Hi. Well, friends, today we have with us Professor Olivier Juliet from the Media and Film and Communications That's me. Department at um, Otago University. He's a former journalist and media worker, and he lectures in um, media studies, and he's done work on populism and uh, online uh, populism and also the um, journalism generally. And firstly, I'll ask you, what led you to do media studies? Oh, man, that's a really, you know what? I've never really contemplated that question. Um, I'm, was that university interested in media? I, I mean, really, I was, my passion was for uh, skateboard videos and production and stuff. So um, I studied media studies out of that just desire to be in, in television and in, in media and you know, passion for film, passion for for journalism, all that kind of stuff, and and there we go. It just kind of we ended up landing there. Uh, we've got a really good tradition in Aotearoa, New Zealand, of media communication studies departments that are that are that are very critical. Like you know, you do a lot of cultural studies and and critical theory, which is pretty cool. And um, I guess that kind of got my uh, political interests flowing from there. So. Are you glad you was a good choice for you? Sure, man. No regrets. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've done work on populism and the uh, Facebook and other uh, online communication. Can you talk about this a bit? Sure. What, I, I mean, what Marvin, is populism and is it right. always right wing? All right. Great question, man. That's well, so that's a, how long you got. I mean, you know, populism is something that. Uh, has a particular tradition in American politics, but not just uh, American politics. In fact, the the Russian, the, the, the Narodniks of the 1905 failed Russian revolution um, could be properly defined as populists. In America, you know, there's not as strong a history of, of labor politics when compared to, you know, let's say Western Europe. And America has never had a labor party, right? You know, we've got a labor party. They were we had a labor party. We had a we had a labor party, right? That was birthed in the kind of, you know, cauldron of 
you know, West Coast mining and all these sorts of questions. And in America, you know, you've had the sort of safety valve of like the frontier and this notion that every white man, largely, let's keep it real, you know, would be promised this kind of like control 40 acres in a mule, right? That sort of ideal producer that like Thomas Jefferson was really the smallholder, the yeoman. That was something that was really tapped as part of America's founding history. And uh, I mean, there was a political movement around a, an explicitly a populist party that was very radical, right? And that was bringing that had uh, cross-racial alliances that was bringing smallholders against the the railway companies and the Vanderbilts and you know so there's a proud legacy of populism of the left, um, but we have seen in I suppose you know pick your I, I would I would focus on the sort of push post Reagan Thatcher period as the sort of current era of populism that we've seen and it's largely been of the right, though, though not exclusively. There's been movements in Spain and in uh, Latin America, um, but we've seen this on the right in our Western democracies, and it is largely, you know, anti-ruling class, but not in a class analysis like that's, uh, you know, based in some form of Marxist or socialist thought, right? It's, it's simply our ruling elite, our managerial elite, our are out of touch and will not do the will of the people. Now that might seem like a, a reasonably okay sentiment, but that can take, if you don't have like a guiding philosophy underneath it, that can go into very strange conspiratorial far right territory. And it's, it's also, and I should, I should add here, and, and we can talk a little bit more about this in the American context, there's been a whole sort of professional lobbying industry to you know, condition uh, certain sectors of suburbia and working class people towards a sort of like right wing yeah. NRA version of this. You're yeah. talking about things like the Tea Party and the National Rifle Association, aren't you? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, the things Tea like Party was works. actually funded basically by oil and coal companies. Yes, by uh, by by the Koch brothers. Koch brothers. Which is, who, who were basically into oil and coal, mostly coal. The very yep. one of the wealthiest um, families in America, and one of the most right-wing. Is there some similarity between this kind of populism and the kind of populism you found in Italy and Spain and um, Germany in the nineteen twenties and thirties? Right. Well. Okay. So I mean, this is um, same. Walter. Roots. What? Walter Benjamin says that you know every fascism is the sign of a failed revolution so what does he mean by that it's like it's basically like if you don't give a some left democratic alternative to fascism well then you'll get fascism right the popular energies of people's dissatisfaction and disgust must go somewhere i'm sorry we can't like rationalize that away um and in and and part of this sort of you know, why I would choose the last 40 years as this key window for, for why uh, populism has become, you know, increasingly prevalent in our politics. Not so much in New Zealand, interestingly, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, the reason why is that people's material conditions, right? Like jobs, wages, uh, healthcare, educate, all the things that like, you know, 
materially impact your quality of life have gone downwards. People say, oh, well, you know, everyone's got an LCD TV, but you know what? That's uh, that, that, that <laughs> I mean, that's not how I think of like uh, a social indices for progress. There are some, there are some sort of like consumer benefits of the last 40 years, but generally speaking, um, we have less time to contribute to our communities, live fulfilled lives in that sense. And so again, people need answers and people need a sense of uh, of recourse for for why that's happened to their countries to their lives and if and if the left wing answer which would be right we need to like recapitalize the state by taxing the rich or we need to rebalance these things or we need to like confront the powerful lobbies if we can't actually do that well then folks are going to you know seek this antagonism in, in other spaces, right? They might fixate on vaccines or they might fixate on immigrants or, or whatever, whatever the issue is. And that's one of the, the key things in um, a, a certain critical theory tradition, an academic sort of tradition of studying populism is, is understanding like that sort of social charge, that, that, that antagonism exists in our democracies we have these, you know, grievances, but also needs and desires to feel like we're part of, you know, the people, to feel like we're keeping the powerful accountable. And so, you know, fascism is diabolical, but it does sell a kind of lie that you're doing that. And so I wouldn't make the straight analogy, though. It's a little it's different, but there it, it definitely captures the same sort of. I'm talking about the atmosphere yeah. of, uh, of uh, Europe and the. Late 20s yes, of and course. 30s. The atmosphere yeah. more than you can't make a. I mean, there's you can't really compare what's going on now and what went on in Germany. Sure, but, but yeah, def definitely, it's it's the sense of uh, the, you know, a new the old world is dying and a new world will have to be mm -hmm. born, right? Like that's uh, you know, that that when, feels palpable. If you look at political parties. Mm -hmm. the political space and also the social space you see people uh wealthy people fairly well represented and intellectuals like yourself fairly well represented mm -hmm. like the labor government under longy and roger douglas was the most in intellectual academic um right we've ever seen but i wouldn't think that most people would feel that they were represented by it well you know i mean uh what can i say about uh academics um some of us talk a good game but at the end of the day yes we are part of like uh powerful institutions that preserve uh you know i mean look a lot of uh, universities are being really encouraged as they're stripped of their funding or uh have had sort of priorities sort of realigned around sort of like market driven research mm -hmm. and design stuff. Now, some of that stuff should exist, but, but universities are definitely encouraged to be entrepreneurial and push for sort of like mm -hmm. neoliberal pu private public partnerships. So um, look, being an academic is an incredible privilege and there are many fine people working on these, you know, big social questions of housing and the welfare state environment, all that kind of stuff. But um 
uh, I'd say some of them are pretty comfortable aligning with a sort of technocratic management of politics. One that sort of tells the working people to just just chill, chill on the sideline. The experts are like, you know, got this. A you bit know. like missionaries. Eh. Um, well, you know, it is a it's a it's it's a it's a privileged position. And uh, part of uh, it is great to be able to, like, you know, do this interview. That's part of my mission as an academic is public outreach. Um, but sometimes we need to be humble. Right. About particularly on questions of politics. And this is, um, you know, whatever sort of big force for social progress that has like historically come, um, this comes by. Yes, the people, the masses, democratic processes, trade unions, civil society groups. What you've seen throughout the the West in the last 30 years or so, if you look at the labor parties, for instance, or the Mm -hmm. the parliamentary parties that are supposed to represent people, you see the business class well represented by conservative parties and also by center parties, center Mm -hmm. center left so-called. But you don't see the working class represented politically. Mar- really. Marvin, do you, do you know who I miss? I, I, I really miss Sue Bradford as somebody who really did stand for, you know, yeah. the, the cla- you know, action, action against poverty. Like, you know, really somebody connected as, as a... I used to know her. I'm sure. Yeah, Sue knows. Sue gets, Sue gets around. And uh, I mean, this is somebody who was a, a real a real activist, right? Who is not a sort of aspiring professional, you know, look, um, look, there's a lot of fine lawyers, there's a lot of fine politicians, but a lot of them will be, yes, highly qualified professionals. And yes, you need those people, but you're right in terms of the actual sort of uh, the labor movement as a movement of, you know, mobilized everyday people is not well represented in our politics, right? And and you need that. It's not you just need... New Zealand. It's even more yes. so in America and perhaps in England after Tony Blair. Well, uh, America, you can't even call them political parties. They're not really political parties in a meaningful sense. Like, you know, you're not a member of the Democratic Party. Like, the state corrals you into these sort of like primary processes, but it's not like you could really... It's uh, I, it was described by uh, oh god what is his name somebody from Jacobin magazine described the uh, Democratic Party as an association of office holders like it's like like a professional uh, trade association like they're they're not a party in that classic sense well, and the people that funded the Democratic Party right um, and have a large influence in it would have rather had Donald Trump. As yes, president than, than, than Bernie uh, Sanders. Bernie Sanders. In fact, right. that's we why Bernie Sanders didn't get the nomination. Yeah, listen, uh, Marvin, we're 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 now charting over the last painful six years of my momentary sort of hopes for not just. I mean, when Jeremy Corbyn was another one, right? Now that yeah. there was there was a process where Labor, the Labor Party, actually opened this up, and we we we've seen this before. Um, the, what happened? The, the, yeah, we saw him. this in New Zealand with 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 Cunliffe and the gap between the parliamentary caucus and the rank and file membership. Now, I mean, David Cunliffe was OK, but part of why I like David Cunliffe was just how much the like uh, the parliamentary caucus hated him. Now, maybe he's got bad people skills. I don't know, but they treated him like he was like a Jeremy Corbyn. I don't think he was. But then Jeremy Corbyn comes in and again. 
I, I, I think of Sue Bradford as a good analogy because, because, you know, Sue was, you know, 20, 20 plus years in politics was uh, consistent, didn't sell out her people really. And that's, that's what, that's how Jeremy got there. Right. He was always um, very consistent in keeping uh, pro peace, pro worker line. And the party didn't believe that he could actually get the nomination. And then when they did, um, am I allowed to say, I mean, they, they screwed him out like royally, yes. like it's, it's the, yeah, whatever. But now we just sound like a bunch of left-wing cranks on community radio, but it was, uh, you know, it, it was one of the most, I mean, they actively worked to undermine him. I don't know if you saw the reporting that in the 2017 election where labor almost won, um, like the party leadership was terrified and was misspending money in what were called marginals or, or swing seats and spending that money in safely like Blairite labor strongholds. They wanted to pump up the centrist candidates and hurt the left-wing candidates. And they even went to the effort of presenting Jeremy Corbyn with like a fake Facebook set of ads targeted just for him so that he would think that his uh, directives were being followed. I mean, just incredible amount of skullduggery um, and, and, and unbelievable disrespect and racism towards you know, Diane Abbott. And just, man, honestly, however bad you might think the New Zealand Labour Party is, if you're like a, if a radical leftist, I mean, the Brits, man, whoa, that's, uh, I mean, they chased Ken Loach out of the party. Anyway, sorry, state of affairs, isn't it? How do we get around this? Oh, man, uh, that's a great question. That's a great question. I think one of the signs that I see that are very hopeful, um, you know, particularly coming out of the U.S. is the, you know, there's they're organizing Starbucks. They're organizing Amazon. It's a huge uphill battle. But if if we were to, like, rewind back to the the halcyon days of the social welfare state now, there were problems. Obviously, if you were Pakiha, you were disadvantaged. So you were advantaged massively, right? If you were Black in America, if you're Maori or Pacific in Aotearoa, like that, that social welfare deal, uh, what you you know what I mean? There were, yeah. you, you wasn't fully, you weren't fully part of this deal. Now, that's not to say that those groups did not benefit in that time where there's this well, general they did, upward and they trajectory. They suffered when, yes. uh, these countries went into a low wage economy. If you look, and that's at, right. If you yeah. look at the black working class yeah. after this, in the from the eighties on, from Reagan on, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, surely the upper middle class Afro Americans did quite well. Mm -hmm. Though many of them were honest about uh, the need for change, still. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And but, this is the yeah, they were they were the last ones in for this new sort of social deal. And they were the first ones out because of the, the yeah. um If you look at the incarceration rates, if you look at uh, uh, low skilled, low paid jobs, it's um, the very people that identity politicians talk about so warmly who suffered mm -hmm. most from. Um, the persecution of the working class, the I, I hear what you're saying. Representation yeah. of the working class. Yeah, and and these are the debates that are um, driving a lot of heat on sort of left wing spaces around 
right? Oh, you, you, you Marxists, you socialists, you only care about the state. You only care about welfare. You don't care about identity and all these uh, complex, important things that are, and again, the same way that I mentioned that like populism captures, you know, that, that identity and the imagination and our sense of participating in something meaningful is an, is a crucial, crucial part of politics. Like there's no politics without that. Um, But having said that these big structural material investments have been the only thing um, or one of the most significant things to have ever, you know, seen demonstrable upward progress for those communities. So so there we go. But we continue having these debates. But the thing that brings me hope and maybe hope is too strong a word is that, you know, you are seeing uh, certain parts of the labor market organize uh, communities that are have set, you know, that you supposed to have never been able to, you know, organize, right. And, and the key thing for anything for is, is, is being sort of rooted at that level with your colleagues, with your workers, with your communities, right. And so uh, my hopes, and my I, you know, are, are for a little bit more grassroots than um, getting too overly worked up about, you know, political polling or any of that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, there we go. Can you talk about um, how social media is fitted into this? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, man. <sighs> okay. Okay. So I suppose at a, at a base sort of superficial level, um, the way in which, uh, or the hegemonic mode. So the majority way in which we engage with social media is constructing ourselves as as little if not micro celebrities we're we're just we're 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 very individuated right we're sort of constructing the self in these very atomized ways and we're perhaps engaging and hoping to get a little bit of you know what the young kids call clout you know like sort of social media clout and and hey maybe maybe once somebody goes viral maybe you can leverage this into uh, getting people to pay you money for watching you game, or maybe you got another business or you got a podcast, whatever. So I'd say the first track here is that social media does um, atomize us in this way. These are technologies, are, these are marketing machines that are by design trying to sort of ascribe us into particular lanes to sell us products. And, you know, there are exceptions to how we might be able to use that um, you know, for, for community, but the rule is, you know, these are sort of like marketing machines and surveillance machines. And, and I think, uh, folks have gotten a little bit, um, I mean, Jody Dean writes about this. Jody Dean is a, is a scholar of, of, of media and political theory. And, and she's basically said, look, you know, we've been sort of stuck in something called the techno democracy fetish. We think that, you know, our engagement with technology and social media is going to like solve these bigger questions. We just have to like network and find the people and this, you know, we'll have this sort of global agglomeration and, you know, and, and we had big popular uprisings, you know, last year or excuse me, 2020 Black Lives Matter. But before that Arab Spring that sort of seemed to tell this story. Um, but, but, you know, uh, these, these movements, uh, can dissolve just as quickly as they are formed through these platforms, and so we need to we need to create other stuff, right? That um, withstands 
that pressure. Otherwise, it just gets absorbed into to marketing and and general sort of like corporate discourse. And I think, you know, you've seen that with with some of those social movements. Um, yeah. So that's part of the social media. Okay, question. I'm going to play a song now. And then sure. We'll come back to that. Okay. Let's do it. to know that I always put my best foot forward I try to put on a good show but the people show up with their cell phone camera like to photograph me on stage and at the end of the night they put the picture on the Facebook page they always seem to get my guitar face with the drool running down my chin and now there's pictures made of every escapade In all the places I shouldn't have been On the wrong side of town Fooling around with women half my age They take the telephone camera And they call up the Facebook page Facebook page Lost control Falling farther down that hole Trying to keep my good side showing But there ain't no privacy In a social network community Lord, won't you help me get my picture off the Facebook page I was always protected by the company lawyers Now I'm living in the public domain Thrown into the crowd where anything's allowed Everybody looks better than me I tell you being a star It ain't what it used to be Facebook Community, so Lord, won't you help me get my picture off the Facebook page? Oh, there ought to be a law about the picture on the Facebook page. The Facebook page. We're talking with Professor Olivia. Julet, and we're talking about social media and populism, and you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcast, and then going to community or chaos. So would you like to say more about the um, online social media? Doesn't it actually continue with a theme that we've seen in the last well, beginning in the 70s, actually, you remember the the slogan? You No, you don't remember the slogan. No, a bit before my time, please tell me. <laughs> um, do your own thing. Right. 
And so the left wing was left wing, though they were not, maybe didn't concentrate on the economic side of... That's right. Of, um, I, I could tell you that, Marvin, uh, there's a wonderful uh, essay called The Californian Ideology by Barbrook and Cameron. And what it is, is it describes... Yeah, I mean, it describes California perfectly because California is socially liberal, obviously, um, and very much embodies the the ethos of of do your own thing, um, but is economically, uh, well, you know, pro business, free market, with with the trappings of like you know someone like Steve Jobs or Jack Dorsey of Twitter, like they go to the Esalen Institute and like meditate. So you know, that's been the the post sixty eight. In, in the U.S. has been this weird convergence. Actually, Thomas Frank's book, Listen Liberal, is brilliant. I mean, he, uh, he talks about the shift from uh, a party that was had some ties, at least, to like class-based organizations and the unions, right? Like, for example, the, uh, what was his name? George Meany, yeah. right? Like, like, these guys had essentially like a stake inside the democratic nominating committee right and in 1972 it was in fact with mcgovern that they that they undid all that now mcgovern was a really cool dude right like and he was anti-war and and whatever and and had some positions that i uh but he was also like you know not enamored with the unions he was really into like academics working at like MIT and in the sort of exurbs of like college towns, like they really saw that professional class as the new base for the democratic party. And that's, that is the base of the democratic party. It's not the working class. It's also it's, the base of many of the labor parties. That's true. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, I mean, look, I mean, yeah, look at the labor parties. They're all young professionals. And again, you need those people. I'm a young professional, so I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to go full populist here, but 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 this becomes tied in this sort of '70s moment of of do your own thing, be true to yourself, seek spiritual enlightenment. Um, this is really key, sort of to the sort of origin story of the internet. I mean, there's another. Sorry to throw obscure references at you, but there's this other brilliant book, um, Fred Turner's uh, The New. The new communalists from counterculture to cyberculture. He talked about how basically, like the the hippie back to the earth movement, really were key to like creating and popularizing the ideas about about networks, about decentralization. That would be, and then they went back to Silicon Valley, right, and started running the companies that would sort of create this highly individualized way of of viewing the world, and so. That's not a coincidence. Like, you know, these are folks that were attacking the notion that we should be doing mass politics, right? Like big organized traditional sort of party-led visions of politics into just, you know, go go spirit questing and go to Burning Man and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, these are the folks that have, yeah, created the coordinates of, of social media. Now, in terms of like the right-wing boomer stuff and, and QAnon, I mean, uh, the reality is, is that these are the folks in American politics that are most coherent or excuse me, not coherent, cohesive as a like political base, 
right? With a sense of shared interests. They're all delusional. They're all participating in like a collective delusion that like Trump is their God emperor or whatever. Um, but they are able to like, you know, <laughs> um, participate meaningfully and effectively through things like Facebook by sharing their totally, you know, insane de delusions about, um, about whatever, you know, about QAnon and uh, satanic conspiracies and all this kind of stuff. Um, but so there you go. Like they, 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 their heightened irrational state is the, the very thing that actually helps cohere and drive networks like in, uh, Facebook because of, you know, there's a lot of heat, there's a lot of engagement, there's all these sorts of metrics and things that, you know, keep people coming back to the attention economy. So you've kind of got the worst of both worlds, right? Kind of like uh, go be true to yourself, individualists and, uh, you know, professionals that, that, that don't want to throw in with their common, don't want to throw in with the kind of common wheel. And then like a bunch of diluted suburbanites that think that they're uh, going to uncover the satanic conspiracy, right? So that's, I mean, I don't know, like there's a lot of space in between, sure, but um that is roughly speaking that feels like the contours of like politics and social media spaces and but, and yeah yeah the man the actually the mechanics of google and so on the the idea that when you go to a certain um feel like you're looking up something in politics or you're looking up something in science and environment they'll send you back there again and again so it actually right. encourages people to compartmentalize and to, in a sense, narrow their their view yep. of, of life. And sure, sure. And now we look. You know the way this worked, and no one's talking about this really. So there's some good folks that talk about like anti-monopoly uh, legislation, and you know we're we're talking on community radio, so you know these are the kinds of entities that are like important for you know, media, democracy, civil society, all this stuff. Historically, we have treated the airwaves and broadcast bandwidth as the property of the people. And in order to get a license to stream, to broadcast, to do whatever, you should be fulfilling certain quota of like public service broadcasting. You should be able to demonstrate that you bring net benefit to society. Now, the way in which we've created um, internet platforms is that, well, they were created willy-nilly without any of those obligations and without any of the consumer protections that would, you know, be able to meaningfully intervene in this sort of this this engine that drives profit on these spaces. And, uh, you know, it's very rare for people to just say that like, oh, right, it's actually it's the capitalist dynamics that are undergirding this that are the problem. I mean, people, experts will come out and say, oh, right, it's foreign governments manipulating the space with memes and stuff. But that's uh, that's not really a meaningful way to think about this. So um, and and unfortunately, I wonder to what extent if, you know, you told people that, like, look, this 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 right that we've enjoyed to self-publish is is maybe a net negative on society. And I don't think I mean, think go, going back to like the sort of Trump, QAnon, Facebook boomers, they view the fundamental freedom, freedom from tyranny is like their right to post, right? It's, it's so we, they've, um, you know, these platforms have come in with, with 
moderate to no regulation and then have reconfigured the, our, our basic social expectations about what freedom are in these very destructive ways, unfortunately. I don't know if you follow my drift there. Yeah. But. What's the European Union? Are there any um, regions or countries that are taking seriously about uh, having some public control over what goes on? There's right. Well, some- yeah, yeah. I think... Um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's idea, which I loved and which is was which was embryonic, was like, OK, we have the baby. We have the BBC and that works on a licensing model. Everybody participates. Everyone gets and understands. I mean, it's the BBC. It's like the NHS. It's one of these things that like people understand that this is important. Right. You know, whatever the Tories say, you know, it's just it's just baked in to the kind of social contract over there. And Corbyn's idea was, why not a, a BBC-style platform, right? Because what is actually Facebook? Facebook's just a phone book. That's really all it is. It's a phone book with, um, you know, different sort of multimedia capabilities and, and all the rest of it. So could we construct an analogous space in the public interest where algorithms are transparent and all this kind of stuff? And that's a great idea. I'm not saying that's going to fly. I mean, you mentioned the EU. EU has pretty, you know, they make data privacy and protection um, a big thing. And because the EU is as big as it is, the, the platforms have to deal with that. Um, but that's not quite disrupting, I guess, this sort of oligarchic power that these, that these companies have. Now, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm not advocating for them, but they've been pretty aggressive in in taking on some of the sort of uh, concentrations of tech power in their country. And some would say that's totalitarian. Others would say, no, there's actually some interesting regulatory principles at work. I'm um, I'm just indicating that there is some stuff coming out of there that sh- that we should pay attention to. But generally speaking, you know, when uh, th- there's not much action going on here. I mean, I remember when uh, the listener went belly up in the early days of COVID, I felt like maybe that would have been the time to like, yeah, hey, maybe the New Zealand government wants to just take the listener masthead and think about how you might use that as like a content space, you know, or platform, right? And, and there, there, you know, we're doing some really good stuff using New Zealand on air to fund uh, journalism, but also, you know, content creators, you know, we should actually try to like capture that on a platform that is our own, right? Um, but I, I, you know, there's there's not really serious talk in that in that way. In one of your papers, and we may have already covered this, but mm-hmm. in one of your papers, you say talk about American liberals, which is really the Democratic Party, sure, as born by the politics of lack. Oh, okay, here we go. Uh, well, all right. So, lack in that sense is a Lacanian is a cur- is a term of Lacanian psychoanalysis. And uh, forgive me if this is like boring or whatever. But Jacques, Jacques Lacan he's very famous for like the mirror stage and for um, theorizing uh, the birth of identity as this sort of painful moment where we leave mother, so to speak, where we are separated from this 
entity that we are like fully reconciled with. And so for Lacan, a lot of, um, well, basically identity is, is this lack, the sense of loss or symbolic castration is this thing that we're sort of trying to claw back. We sort of, it's, it's the engine that drives desire and identity. And it's this- Does just, I this drive thing. identity politics in some I would, Well, all right. Maybe I can, maybe I can work myself up to that. I would say- that the key thing about what the Democrats do and how they represent a politics of lack is that they don't, if, if you watch the West Wing, okay, that TV show, none of these characters have any core convictions, but are, are just absolutely, they fetishize and love the drive of sort of like horse trading and compromising and 12 dimensional chess and all of these sorts of processes, they just become um, really fetishistically enamored with this notion that, that there will be this process involving the, the best and brightest. And, you know, this, this, this thing will forge uh, an outcome which will be perfect and virtuous. But these are people that don't really have core principles upon which they're, they're driving towards this outcome. So this, this process becomes a stand-in for that lack, if you will. And, and, and that is why there's this just incredible kind of fetishization. And again, a lot of the shine, now that we're, now that we're in just sort of like Joe Biden's sort of like sleepy time uh, America, this, this, I don't know how much this holds, but I'm thinking definitely around the sort of Obama era and peaking with Hillary, there was a, a belief in just sort of solutionist-oriented processes rather than core convictions. Because, frankly, for the last 30, 40 years, I mean, what does, what does American liberalism stand for? I mean, like Joe Biden's just ra raising Medicare premiums. Like there's, uh, there's, 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 there's nothing sort of, there's nothing there. There's only, and this is, I suppose, the really crucial part is, we're not Trump. You need us to protect us from Trump or from, you know, DeSantis or QAnon or whatever it is. They are only able to sort of like reflect the monster. But that's no future. That's, and I that, think that's dude, no way of actually stopping the monster either. Hell no. It's just feeding the monster. You literally need the monster every time to be able to say this is the most important election of our time of our era like it's like you know have you done anything guys have you done any homework you know it's it, yeah it's 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 death drive i mean it's it's america careening towards some sort of cataclysm sorry sorry to be it's it's not great we're not in a great place but yeah <laughs> anyway um yeah and i just wish i i wish we could um have it's it's almost like moral and ethical commitments in politics are are gauche, you know, and I and I wish we could have a politics that starts from that place. Mm. And I don't think you need to be a Marxist or whatever to start from there. But um, and I think the other thing too is that uh, people need to see you like fighting and really full of that 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 brimming with that sort of passion that is what you know populists purport to have. Right. You know, uh, Trump was big in 2016 and, and like it was bullshit, obviously, because the man is a bullshit artist. But, you know, he would go to Ohio and talk about like uh, the opioid crisis. And, you know, uh, there was this sort of really sort of emotional resonance for 
for some people around that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's that's not demagogic. I mean, yes, from Trump, it's demagogic, but that very sort of, um, you know, bringing that moral element into our politics is not, you know, we not haven't demagogic. Seen, really seen that in action. We've seen kind words. We haven't seen that in action since uh, Norman Kirk. Have we? Well, again, I, uh, oh, no, that, that predates me. I've heard some things about Kirk, but uh, yeah, I mean, again, uh, to bring it back to the sort of like, you know, politics for the parties of the center left have become about showing managerial competency, you know, and sort of like technocratic chops. Um, and that's, um, you know, that that'll segue nicely into like, be serving on a corporate board somewhere or go on and working for like, you know, big, uh, you know, NGOs or multilateral organizations. But, you know, this is not uh, the po- the politics of the moment are very urgent, you know, and I wish what, I wish those what, folks could really what, feel that. What do you feel is urgent? Right oh, now? man, I'm, I mean, like, you know, $50 benefit increase. Like that's just been told like there is. We, all right. It's really hard because I know that the Australian banks have got us right on the housing issue. Yeah, we're the I, ones I, that decided not to have our own banks, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, was yeah. 1980s, late 80s, early 90s. Right. Uh, so I mean, what could we? The Labor Party sold off the New Zealand banks. I mean, yeah, and, and this is the thing: is that no one. I mean, I've interviewed Michael Cullen, and he'll say, "Look, you know, maybe we went too fast." But they but don't say they went the wrong. They direction. don't say we. Up, sorry, they don't say that. And what was interesting about was Cunliffe was a guy who was like the neoliberal period is over. He would say that, and that would make folks like Annette King and Trevor Mallard kind of nervous. Um, and I don't know how much he really meant it. I really want to like, what can we do with Kiwi Bank, right? How can we how can we manage this bubble downward in a way that is the least destructive possible, but that acknowledges that we need to manage this bubble downward, right? The notion that the prime minister has said that New Zealanders should expect reasonable growth in their primary asset. In the context of the current moment, that's not reasonable, right? Housing is out of control. And it is the number one thing that is destroying wage packets, benefits, social costs, social cohesion, you name it. And I don't know why, if I were advising Winston Peters, and I'm not because I don't, you know, I don't like Winston Peters, but I don't know why a populist hasn't come along and threatened to to, to break out a blowtorch to Fletcher's and described, we have this monopoly and we need to, we need to whack them. We need to bring them to heel, right? I mean, look, maybe the last 30, 40 years has so defanged the levers of government that no one even dares bring up this stuff. There's, um, there's a scene from a film you'll remember well, Network. Do you remember Network? No. This was the movie with uh, Howard Beale, the crazy TV anchor that basically you know goes on rants about you know this kind of stuff, and at one uh, oh god, I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up now. Um, and there's one scene where where Ned Beatty brings the character Howard Beale down into a dark room and just basically you know gives him like the eye of Sauron look and talk about hey buddy, this is how this really works, and maybe everybody in politics gets that talks. You know, like I remember Bill Clinton. There's a famous excerpt of Bill. Clinton getting that talk about like, you know, treasury bonds and all this kind of stuff. And so 
maybe people are just so well disciplined that they know um, not to go there. But this is the, you know, this, these are the prime matters of the national welfare right now. How is this and sitting with climate change? Well, then there's climate. My God. I mean, one of the um, problems I see <laughs> is that um, some economists, in fact, very orthodox economists, say that capitalism and growth are one and the same. That growth yes. is essential for capitalism. But is growth essential for the well-being of the future or the well-being of the earth? Now, so, you know, this is the thing where you have folks that are saying, well, look, just hop in your Tesla, you know, and we're going to speed our way to the future. Which you is, mean of course, individual action. We'll recycle, we'll yes. buy electric cars. We don't have yeah. to, to worry about uh, the government doing these things. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, which is which is crazy. And uh, and of course, you know, cap and trade is like, uh, you know, emissions trading has like a market driven approach to to managing this as opposed to like, let's just tax it out, you know. But anyway, so uh, we are going to have as not just at a national level. And I'm sorry if this like freaks out like the anti-vaxxer people, but like we're going to have to figure out what do we do with, I don't know, communities, vulnerable communities from the Pacific to Bangladesh to parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And we are going to have to, as a globe, decide whether we will transfer populations and embrace the notion that every human life has a right to exist in whatever world that comes out the other side of dramatic climate change, or we're going to have, you know, we're going to have wars. We're going to have genocidal wars, right? I could imagine, I could imagine America, like, you know, nuking this. No, I mean, look, all right, sorry. All right, whatever. That's actually, maybe that's more Trumpian, but, you know, weaponizing the Southern border in such a radical way to make sure that, you know, no one wants to cross that border, right? That would be the next step of the militarized border that already exists, right? Um, and and that's a world I don't want to live in, <laughs> and no one wants to live in that world. Uh, some of our our tech overlords see that and have already sort of like you know bought the bolt holes and and you know the the sort of are the, they going to are, are going to be good citizens? Well, no, I don't think so. Should but, you be able to buy citizenship? Oh uh, God, yeah, that whole Peter Thiel thing is an ugly business. I'm not. A, I got to say, not a huge fan. Um, what about I'm not a, the idea that instead of leveling, instead of triple trickle down and making the rich richer, maybe we, if we had a more equalitarian society we, and we had a more security, we wouldn't be so afraid of doing the necessary things for climate change. That's that's exactly right. We got to we got to learn those capacities, and that was where uh, you know the the start of COVID was uh, both terrifying but a, a, a hopeful moment. That that maybe some of those reflexes we okay. could start relearning. Okay, well, you know the public place. and community. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. a good place to finish off with uh, the hope that we had the be with the <laughs> beginning of COVID and the fact that we are really a collective entity and it can only survive as a collective entity. That's right, and I will always okay. throw in with the common wheel. because that's the only world. That's the only vision of the future that I want to be a participant yeah, in. I, I don't. Yeah. Thanks a lot. No worries, Marvin. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.